Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, Managing Editor of Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. We're pleased to have with us today Attorney Al Goldberger from the law offices of Al Goldberger in Florham Park, New Jersey. Al focuses a great deal of his practice on sports, business, and administrative law, sports athletic risk management, and sports claims defense. He is a nationally recognized authority on sports law and sports officiating, and has served as corporate counsel to both businesses and insurance carriers. Al has officiated college and high school sports for more than 30 years. He is the author of Sports Officiating, a Legal Guide, which is the recognized legal authority for game officials. He is also a co-author of Sport, Physical Activity, and the Law, which is now in its third edition. Al has been a featured speaker at numerous national conferences on legal matters pertaining to sports law and officiating over the years. And Al, we're very pleased to have you with us again today. Thanks very much, John. Great to be with you again. Today's topic is on concussions and the updated legal and insurance issues in today's sports environment and athletic communities. And Al, can you tell us how concussion protocol impacted sports on the high school and college levels in recent years? Well, John, uh, concussion protocol actually has come into its present vogue as a result of some significant rules changes almost six years ago to the day announced by the National High School Governing Body, known as the National Federation of State High School Associations, and almost simultaneously announced by its next-door neighbor, the National Collegiate Athletic Association, the NCAA, Around the same time, the high school federation, which we call the NFHS, reformulated their rule, and and it was across all sports. The NCAA Committee on Competitive Safeguards and Medical Aspect Sports resolved to revise the college playing rules in virtually all sports in a similar manner, and there were new rules born as a result of uh, some data that had come to the forefront uh, late in 2009 and uh, in 2010 with the uh, advent of the uh, spring seasons and fall seasons, of course, not far behind. New rules were born, and uh, there was, at the beginning, a great deal of confusion over the mechanics of enforcing those rules. That was also complicated by the presence of a couple of state laws that were enacted involving concussion in school sports. In 2010, we started out with uh, maybe six or seven laws at various times during the years, and then as the years went on, we got to a point where finally all 51 states, a number of cities and, and other local uh, governments have enacted laws uh, regarding concussion in sports. So protocols have impacted greatly, and and not always in a good way, uh, high school and college sports and youth sports as well. There have been recent developments. Of course, there are always developments in the law. Uh, College athletic trainers uh, on the college level were complaining that football coaches sometimes and other coaches pressured athletes to return to games before they were ready to. They complained sometimes that their jobs might be in jeopardy. There's a lot of confusion among those supervising college sports and and high school sports as well as to who had the authority to do what. There is some light in the college area on 
on that front in that uh, as recently as this January, the so-called power conferences have petitioned the NCAA to go in a new direction for college sports. And and under their plan, college coaches aren't going to be the supervisors of, of doctors or athletic trainers anymore to the extent that they were. And they won't have any type of pressure or any significant pressure that they will be able to exert. Dr. Hanline, uh, the, the medical officer, said he, he thinks it's the, the pending NCAA legislation that is proposed by the power conferences is the most significant rule change in NCAA history, and he may be right. On the high school front, uh, for the college folks, of course, the, the committee involved in 2010 proposed sweeping rule changes, which actually were enacted, and then somehow or other, as the years passed, uh, rather quickly, those rules that uh, required officials and coaches to remove student-athletes when they exhibited a sign, symptom, or behavior consistent with concussion were kind of done away with, except for the sports of soccer and wrestling where they still are in effect today. On the high school level, officials and coaches are still responsible for removing a student-athlete who exhibits a sign, symptom, or behavior of concussion during either a practice or a game. And that rule, with a lot of confusion as to mechanics, has persisted, and of course state law impacts this as well. So the protocols, while they are not too clear in all cases, uh, are certainly, they, their presence is certainly felt, and sometimes, unfortunately, in the absence of the, uh, the exercise of the proper protocol. Now, are all sports being impacted, or is football still by far the biggest or primary area of concern? I don't know that football is, is the primary area. It's certainly the primary area in terms of publicity, and that is likely occasioned by all of the media attention to the thousands of claimants who are, are involved in the NFL, obviously the pro football uh, litigations and the NCAA uh, uh, athletes as well. But uh, the data that we have tells us that, first of all, you have over a million and a half people by, by any estimates, who get sports concussions every year, maybe as high as 4 million people. In college uh, sports, men's wrestling, very high in terms of concussion, ice hockey, men's and women's, and, and soccer, basketball, lacrosse, field hockey, they're all implicated. And, of course, if, if you're the student athlete or you're the team that, whose athlete suffers a catastrophic injury, of course, for you it's 100%. So I think all, it's fair to say that all sports are impacted. And the coverage issues and the liability issues, of course, are cross-sport. The details change a little bit, but the liability issues and the insurance issues are still there. How concerned are the schools then about insurance coverage? Probably not as concerned as they should be, because what's going on in the insurance industry with the difficulty of dealing with uh, these claims and the increased frequency of these claims uh, is a world that uh, is probably only made visible to the the schools that are involved in litigation, and and for the rest of them, uh, they know they have insurance, they think they have insurance, and they expect that there's going to be defense and indemnification when a claim occurs. So it, sh- it should be more of a concern than it is, but it's there. Do you think it would ever get to a point where one of the major schools or colleges would ever drop a sports program? I think not. 
I think not. I think that uh, for the schools uh, for whom uh, uh, sports is is a significant aspect of the program, and, and uh, obviously it's not just the Division One schools, but dropping the sport is not really what they see as a viable alternative, at least not in, in 2016. From a referee's perspective, how has protocol changed for when head injuries occur now? Well, the protocol has changed dramatically uh, on the high school level uh, and on the college level, not so much. You're dealing with an adult population and the, and the difference now in most of the rules codes on the college level as, as compared to the high school level, uh, protocols are much different. On the high school level, of course, uh, you have officials uh, working under the National Federation of High School Association rules for the most part, and those rules are very specific along with state laws, as I said before, in all states and the District of Columbia that require removal of athletes from not only games or matches or meets, but also from practices, which includes scrimmages and any time you have the team together and they're participating in, in either a practice uh, or a game. So the protocols require, uh, in, in terms of the rule, uh, the official to recognize an injury, as officials have done for decades, and recognize if a student athlete is uh, displaying any one or more sign, symptom, or behavior consistent with concussion. Uh, this basically, although stated a little differently, has been true for many, many years prior to six years ago when new data came out and when all the rules changed and the landscape changed and concussion claims uh, started to come to the forefront. But in years past, officials were expected to, uh, at, at first, going back to the 80s uh, or thereabouts, the deal was in the rules that if a student-athlete became unconscious as a result of a collision uh, or a fall, then that student-athlete was removed and could not return to a game absent medical approval. After that, the rule was changed a number of years ago to refer to a student who was apparently unconscious, uh, and the reasoning was that, and of course everybody knows now, but few knew back then, that the vast majority of folks uh, at any age who sustain a concussion do not lose consciousness. Uh, so they went to apparently unconscious on the high school level, and what they really meant was not apparently unconscious, like with your one's eyes closed and motionless, but what they meant was pretty much what the current day definition is, a sign, symptom, or behavior that would be consistent with a concussion. So the rule basically, and this is really where, uh, to my mind, you prevent claims because you prevent injury by knowing when to take the student-athlete out of the game, and as importantly, knowing when it's too soon to put the student-athlete back in, and too soon on the high school level, um, except for states that have a statute that says differently, is unless and until a medical professional designated by a state association as, as the person in authority gives the okay for the student-athlete to return. In some states, by state law or by state association adoption, it's not that day at all once the student comes out. In other states, such as my, here in New Jersey, where we are, you can come back with a doctor's approval by statute so that 
that's critically important, obviously, that the athlete who comes out of the game, uh, because there's a, uh, some kind of concussive type sign, does not come back in unless and until medically cleared to come back in, whether it's the same day or not. Now, what are the primary concerns of insurance carriers, and how can attorneys counsel them? Well, that certainly is a topic that has had some uh, ups and downs. They have, on the carrier level, obviously a lot of concerns about uh, the potential for for all kinds of injuries and the alleged knowledge of the organization sponsoring sports. And again, football is very heavily involved here, of course. Uh, the knowledge of uh, that uh, that these injuries and concussive injuries occur. Uh, there have been uh, many instances, certainly over the last three years, where from the NFL on down, there have been actions for declaratory judgment, uh, seeking court intervention to determine those types of coverage uh, questions. There are questions that the carriers are thinking about in terms of is is there an occurrence under a policy because these injuries, uh, the concussive type injury, is really an expected. Uh, part of the game. Uh, there's the question of trigger. Are there multiple injuries? Sometimes in, in traumatic brain injury scenarios, particularly when a student athlete returns too soon, there are complications in later years. There are successive injuries. There may be multiple policies uh, uh, implicated. So there's and the, the duty to defend and the question of trigger and the question of you know, multiple injuries and coverage periods are all, I think, on the, within the carrier's uh, thinking. In addition, uh, new types of defenses uh, to coverage are being wheeled out where injuries caused by intentional conduct, where the governing bodies and the sponsoring organizations knew that there was a high risk of this type of injury. Uh, uh, were there pre-existing conditions? Are there, there are proof problems, of course, in many of these cases in terms of athletes who may play multiple sports or have, may have sustained multiple injuries. So there's occurrence questions. Uh, there's a question as to whether a, 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 a what turns out to be a catastrophic or a very serious brain injury uh, happens as a result of one collision or one incident or whether it happens over a successive uh, period where multiple policies may be involved. So all of these issues are uh, obviously troubling and uh, from an underwriting perspective uh, require uh, more thought. There are obviously ancillary injuries which occur and uh, it, it creates some very interesting coverage and defense questions for the carriers and, and uh, it remains to be seen as the case law develops how those things are going to uh, to play out. And of course we have not only the the headline-making class-action-type multiple tort cases where you have hundreds or thousands of plaintiffs who claim that they've sustained concussive injuries. Uh, you have the other lawsuits which have not met with much success, the, the mass tort-type suits that aren't seeking damages for anybody but just want to reform the way athletics are, are organized and governed and the way medical protocols are, are uh, effectuated for sports, and those lawsuits have not met with success, to my knowledge. And then you have uh, lawsuits w uh, brought by the parents or, or the survivors of, um, of student-athletes who sustained a concussive injury, and they claim that uh, 
number one uh, in most cases, uh, the folks who were coaching, officiating, administering the sport and the activity weren't trained to be able to identify the condition. They didn't know when the student-athlete really should be taken out of a game, or they ignored the evidence that was there and and permitted the student-athlete to remain in the game. Uh, They didn't have adequate safety measures. Uh, They didn't have sufficient medical personnel on hand. They didn't classify the student-athletes in certain sports properly so that they wouldn't be competing uh, against people where they they could be safely competing. Uh, And all of those individual claims uh, are somewhat less problematic than the the mass torts and the politically uh, uh, motivated policy-type claims that public policy type claims that we have but they're you know they're obviously no less troubling or problematic for the the uh, the litigants and the carriers involved so you have all of these things and there's basically uh, superimposed on all this is more or less a state of mass confusion on the part of everyone as just to how to deal with concussive injury in sport and the prevention of claims and and I think uh, to editorialize for a moment, it's it's certainly clear to me, uh, and having been an official for 37 of the last uh, 40 years, that uh, uh, many people think the problem of concussion in sports can be solved by relying exclusively on coaches, volunteer and otherwise, whose uh, training may leave something to be desired, and by passing out pamphlets to a bunch of parents. And in reality, it doesn't work that way because the claim is prevented and the injury that generates the claim is prevented by knowing when to take Junior out of the game and knowing when it's too soon to put him or her back in the game. So, uh, you know, that's really where the rubber meets the road, John, is that you have to know when to get the child out. And you have to have the perspective to understand that what we are talking about here is not only a game, but in many cases it's a children's game. Uh, on the youth sport level below high school where you have more dependency on volunteers, less access to medical care on site, and People who really uh, are running the program who may not be aware of the uh, the import and the gravity of the exposure that the young students have, uh, it, it's even worse. So it is a national, widespread, and uh, rather discouraging problem for sport. And you know we're trying to make inroads, but people need to understand that pamphlets won't do it, and laws are not a panacea. That if you have a law that all of a sudden, magically, everything's okay. You know, somebody has to know when to have the child taken out and evaluated or the whole thing breaks down. Right. So in the end, where do you see this headed, particularly at that youth level, and Al, in the coming years? Well, I think uh, we've already seen a couple of of settlements uh, in terms of youth sports with claims like this, which are significant only in in terms of that... uh, some national organizations are involved, and uh, the claims were resolved uh, short of being tried. But obviously, on a national level or even on a statewide level, the people who govern sport can't really be assured that the people who are actually present and coaching, officiating, or administering a particular event will know what to do unless they have developed 
policies and protocols and mechanics that the people who are involved will actually utilize. Uh, you know, we don't really need uh, a bunch of soccer parents telling the doctors how to do their jobs. We need to get the children to the doctors so that can happen and get them off the field or court. So I, I see um, more claims coming down in the future. I see more confusion until situations shake out and people understand that you can't rely on volunteers, but you need to rely on trained functionaries to to coach and especially to referee because the student athletes most often literally fall or get knocked down at the feet of the referees. So, you know, that's really where you prevent the the injury and you prevent the success of injury. I hate to say the worst is yet to come, but I think we're still feeling our way. Al, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. That was Alan Goldberger from the law offices of Alan S. Goldberger in Florham Park, New Jersey, and special thanks to today's producer, John Weber. Thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, visit podcast.insuranceattorneysearch.com or go to online directories such as iTunes or Google or Yahoo's podcast directory. If you have any suggestions for a future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast.ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, and now this message. Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is used by decision makers at insurance companies responsible for selecting legal counsel and representation. The printed directory is distributed annually to insurance companies, non-insurance companies, third-party administrators, and corporate counsel around the world, and the online edition is accessible throughout the year. Your listing in Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is the most effective way to ensure that thousands of potential clients have access to your outstanding credentials. Here's why you should be listed in the number one insurance insurance attorney reference. Your firm's credentials will be listed in our comprehensive reference guide, which is made available to thousands of insurance professionals globally, both in print and online. AMBEST listees are recognized as the most qualified in their field to represent the unique needs of insurance companies. Key decision makers rely on the directory to take the guesswork out of their selection process. They know that only the best are listed, those firms with a proven track record of excellence who are recommended by their insurance industry clients. And remember, one low rate guarantees year long visibility for your firm. We invite you to use our web application process to apply for a listing today. With our reasonable rates and broad exposure, there's no more effective way to get the attention of the insurance industry. For more information about Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys, visit www.insuranceattorneysearch.com. 